This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the Fox News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. We have a lot to discuss, obviously. The number to call to be a part of it, one 408 7669 We have a lot to discuss because what's going on in this country as well as the mood of this country, and we're on the precipice of really kicking into gear for 2024. Uh, our guest this hour on the border, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Alan West. Uh, Josh Crashauer will be here, and I was also talking about Another one of our big three. But Josh will be here from, uh, as you know, he's with Axios. Did some fascinating polls. They also have great insight. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Professors have been telling students uh, to not like their country. You know, when students talk about uh, their nation, it's either to demean the United States, to degrade the United States. And I've had it, but that's what the polls show. Just because those professors and those teachers don't like the country, now we're getting a generation that don't like the country. America's changing. According to the Wall Street Journal poll, and it's not better as patriotism, not better on religion, and there's no focus on the family like there should be. They vary wildly, though, according to party. We'll examine both. Number two. It wasn't just Republicans, Democrats. Just listen to the CEO. When we he got asked the question, is the Chinese government spying on Americans through TikTok? He goes, well, it's a different term of spying, right? Why would we ever allow that? China calls us out for possibly banning TikTok. Wow. This from a nation that's banned Facebook, Twitter, and Google, which all we need, all you do, all you need to know is uh, they decide what their people hear, and they want to decide what we hear. Delete that app. Number one. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, the bank would have to get along by itself, and maybe they could have. What happened with the bank is interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell, and I beat the hell out of him. Uh, 2024, Trump sat down with Sean Hannity. The interview contains solutions, complaints, and rages against DeSantis. We'll look at the GOP field as more and more Dems are leaving the Biden camp. I was kind of shocked by that. Uh, first off, it was good to see uh, Sean Hannity sit down with his good buddy, uh, President Trump, who sat down for an hour on Fox News last night. What um, I'm going to let you hear what he has to say, but if, if I'm Trump, never any campaigns. So you might say, what does Brian know about this? But I would say for the last 25 years, seeing so many campaigns up close and personal and seeing the results from the smallest and biggest primary and caucus, I do have an idea. So if you're an incumbent president, we've never seen this before. Grover Cleveland, you know, lost. He won. He lost. He won again. We've never seen anyone 
really go back for it, you know, go at it again after losing. And President Trump's looking to do that. He wins in 2016, loses in 2020, despite amassing 72 million votes, the most by any Republican candidate ever. But Joe Biden didn't get votes. There were votes against Trump, in my view. So if I was Trump, I'd say, look, you made your choice. Look at how it's going economically. Look at our relations in the Middle East. Look at what's happening with war in Europe. Look at our relations with China. Look what's going on with education. Look at how much money has been spent on stimulus that we didn't need. Look at the results with inflation. Look at how these banks are failing. Look at how patriotism has dropped. Pride in our country has fallen. I could bring it back. I know the mistakes I made. I'm ready to go. And all those other people that are ready to go, they're good. They're talented. They're not me. Only I can do it. That's Trump. But we didn't get enough of that yesterday. I don't believe. Here's what he said. What do you do when it comes to the banking crisis? Cut three. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, The bank would have to get along by itself, and maybe they could have. What happened with the bank is interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell, and I beat the hell out of him. I was not a big fan of Powell. I was rec- he was recommended by some people. I didn't like him. Uh, he's uh, too interest rate happy. What you do is you get the oil prices down. That's bigger than interest rates. The only thing. And what happened is we took an oil and now we take an interest rates. Those banks failed because the interest rates were too high. They stupidly bought low term treasury. And that, that to me is Trump is 100 percent right. I'll add something else to this. Uh, We wouldn't have had inflation like we had that would force the Fed to act. They say to control inflation, uh, you have to raise the interest rates. Well, why are the interest rates going up? Because it was at zero for too long. Some speculate. But if if inflation was indeed transitory or was tolerable at 3% or 3.5%, and you would assume, like Larry Summers says, if you don't put another $2 trillion into an economy that was already overheated, that was showing flat-out signs of recovering because the pandemic was coming to a close. People were coming back to work. The free money was stopping. But instead, you got a rescue plan was full of green energy agenda, stuff we can't afford, piled on the debt, devalued the dollar to, to, get, the value, to get the economy under control. As people kept spending, they raised interest rates. And now we're stuck at very high interest rates compared to what we're used to. And now we look at a situation where banks are upside down because they invested in long-term bonds that don't pay off when it compares to inflation in our country and compares to the idiot ways in which they invested. Idiot, if I could quote Kevin O'Leary from yesterday. He looks at what these boards have done and looks at how what the Fed has done and said, we've absolutely been led by idiots. They should not be saved. So I'm fine with that. What I, I, I worry, too, about why the president just looks at Ron DeSantis now as an enemy. And I just I remember Dolan Bush 41. I remember they went at it. I remember Bush 41 called it Bush uh, Reagan's economic plan, voodoo economics. I remember McCain and George W. Bush getting extremely personal. I get it. And I'm fine with that. But why now, if you are the front runner by 20 points nationally, like the current president is with four major court cases coming down the pike? Why do this? Cut one. And I knew Ron a little bit. I didn't know him very well, but I knew him a little bit. I knew him as somebody that defended me. So what happened with Ron is the following. He came to see me. He was getting killed. He was being crushed. 
Adam Putnam, it was over. I have many people that I know that worked for Adam Putnam. They said it was like a nuclear, I hate to use this expression, Mm -hmm. it was like a nuclear weapon went off when you endorsed because they considered the race to be over. They had the race. He had millions and millions of dollars, and he was way up in the polls. He was beating Ron by 30 points or so. It was over. Ron came to see me, tears in his eyes. Okay, I I don't need to go on. So here's the deal. They do get along. They work together. It's in Ron DeSantis' book. They work together on this green allergy situation with the Army Corps of Engineers together. They were in constant contact on the pandemic with communication. Uh, they went out of it with President uh, Trump uh, had Ron DeSantis watch his back on the election in 2020 and felt as though Florida was delivered. A lot to do with Ron DeSantis working hard for him and because he wasn't up for election himself. So they do get along. To pretend they're not friends is odd. You know, McCain and Bush were not friends. Before, and they went at it bitterly after. But it's just an odd. I guess it's Trump being Trump. There's no way that that DeSantis came to him with tears in his eyes. This is the story. Ron DeSantis said, I didn't want to be away from my family as much. I want to come home and run for state office. Or office is not going to keep me in Washington so often. And he was probably going to go into a private business. Or he was going to run for governor. So he ran for governor. Putnam had the momentum, no doubt about it. Without the president's endorsement, he likely doesn't win. Okay. Tears in his eyes. Everyone begged him not to. Uh, hasn't done a great job in Florida. Not good on the pandemic. It's just not true. What you say is he's got a bright future. He's 44 years old. But he's got to learn on the job. We can't afford to learn the job. I did it for four years. I know all the players. In fact, with uh, Merkel gone in Germany, I like this crew better than I did the last crew. And I know President Xi, exactly what I'm getting into. So any learning curve is gone. You can't afford it. Let me go in and straighten it out. Let these guys have the next generation. To me, you do that. You get ahead of the polls, and you hold on to that lead, and they gradually bow out, and you got allies again. That's what I thought. Here's Kevin McCarthy, cut four. There is enough problems that the Democrats have brought us. We have inflation. We have a border that's wide open. We pay more for gasoline and energy. We've got a world moving with war happening. We've got now China moving into Saudi, moving into the Middle East, bringing Saudi Arabia and Iran together. That used to be the leadership of America. I don't think Republicans should go after one another. We need to bring this nation back, bring Republicans in, independents and Democratic, Democrats, too, because we cannot handle four more years of Joe Biden. Right. Right. And, and listen, Mr. President, uh, former president, you could do it. You know how to do it. I don't know anything about these court cases. They seem pretty aggressive, but you've done it before. But you got to change your message. Saying that Ron DeSantis would be making pizza if it wasn't for him. People are upset by that. I mean, Democrats aren't, but Republicans are. So speaking of Democrats, and I'll step aside because I want to get to Colonel West. When asked the preference for 2024 Democratic nomination, 44% of Democrats want Biden to step aside. 30% no preference. 25% said run again. 25% said run again. Mr. President, you're a better president. You're a better leader. You know more about the economy. You are not shot at 76. You look, you look a little rattled because of these cases, no doubt about it. Family's not with you this time. Maybe Eric is and Don Jr. Ivanka not being there probably doesn't help. Melania's not enthusiastic, doesn't put the wind at your back. You're worried about these cases. Who wouldn't be? I get it. But if you want to win, I mean, you don't want to run. I totally understand it. But if you're going to get in it, I know you want to win it. That's not the way to do it. 
especially when you have a vulnerable opponent that's been terrible as a president, and most independents and, and moderate Democrats will be open to your candidacy. But you got to change and moderate the message. Have fun again. But there are a lot of good other Republican candidates out there that would do just as good. Um, you just want to have the rent. This. Just, they're just not you. So if you wanted to be you, you got to change. And stop complaining. one 408 One thing the president did extremely well. It took a while, but, man, he adjusted the border. Things were going a lot better. 450 miles of fence. Border, border Patrol. They were totally supported. Central and South America had their aid restored when they started clamping down on their own borders, especially Mexico. That is not the case right now. We talk about that with Colonel Allen West. And at the bottom of the hour, we go inside politics with Axios' own John Kroshauer. So glad you're here. Brian Kilmeade Show. It's Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm always very optimistic about our country, and I know that people love our country. And there may be pockets of distension where we're, you know, I think especially with our younger generation, and I hate to pick on them, but, you know, I, they came, they, it seems like some of them like to pray to TikTok when they should be praying to the Lord. Um, I think we've kind of lost our way, but I blame, it, you know, it's a parenting thing. You know, I make sure that I raise my sons as a faith-based family. Um, my wife is the queen of the castle, and they, they will show respect. They will get their education. They will do it the way that I was raised, you know, in East Texas. Um, maybe, uh, I wish we could share that with the rest of the country. Maybe they could take some notes from it. Yeah, it would be great. Uh, we're going to be talking about that uh, when Lieutenant Colonel Ann West joins us. Josh Crashauer will talk about what it means in the polls. But he just talked about people, for the most part, not appreciating the country. There's a Wall Street Journal uh, published a study, and it's pretty disturbing about what people think of the country. Um, and it's not positive when it comes to the University of Chicago did it, uh, commissioned it, and patriotism. Do you think patriotism is important? In 1998, the answer to that from 70% was yes. In 2019, 61% said yes. Now, 38%. Is having children important? 1998, 59% said yes. Now, 43% in 2019. Now it's fallen to 23%. And what does religion mean? In 1998, 62% said it was important. 48% in 2019. Now, 39%. But on the 39%, uh, on the 38% of patriotism, it's important to point out uh, that Republicans feel much better. 59% said it's important. 23% of Democrats. Joining us now, a man who thinks it's very important, fought for this country for years, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. Colonel, I don't know how much of the study you heard or read came out on Monday, but does it, does it surprise you? That uh, this thirty-four uh, percent of the country thinks thirty-eight percent of the country thinks patriotism is important. 
you know, it doesn't surprise me because when you look at the whole spectrum of the media landscape, you don't see a lot of talk about the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, service to the country, pride in being an American. You hear and see everything that professes that America is bad. And uh, I think that the more you continue to have that type of message out there, that type of narrative, we don't teach these things at our schools. You go on to college and university campuses, and look what happened to me at the University of Buffalo when I had to be escorted off of campus by police. I'm a retired, you know, colonel from the United States Army and member of the United States House of Representatives, and I was just there to talk about, you know, my American story and how I didn't see America as this overly racist uh, country. So I do think that we have a problem, and it comes back to the narrative that's being pushed out there through our media, in academia, and in entertainment as well. But Top Gun, Maverick, was a very successful movie, but uh, I don't think the left wanted it to be successful. Oh, yeah, only 23%. In that study, only 23% said patriotism is important. Uh, having children, not many people are into that. When it comes to money, the GOP, 45% says it's important. The Dems, 45% says it's important. So at least we have that. Uh, 59% of, of Republicans say patriotism is important. That only gives it a somewhat tolerable move. Sir, on the border, the president of the United States said it's the Republicans who are not looking to finance the border. How insulting is that? Well, it's incredibly insulting. It comes back to the narrative that he gets away with. And so why wouldn't someone immediately challenge him and say, you know, Mr. President, first and foremost, you have not shown any care or concern about the border. Your policies, you've reversed everything that was working on the border. And now, not just on the southern border, we have a problem on the northern border as well. So, you know, until we get an honest media, and again, I believe in the freedom of a press, but I don't want to see an ideological press, and that's what we have going on out there. Yeah, here's what uh, James Comer said, cut 39. I thought his lie a week ago where he said it wasn't true that his family uh, was taking money from China was about as big a lie as he could ever tell until he told that lie about the southern border. All Republicans have done is tried to do everything to pressure this administration to do what it's supposed to do, and that's secure the southern border. He's the one that's created an open border policy. He's the one that's allowed all this fentanyl to come across the border and kill over 100,000 Americans. And he's the one that's standing in the way of Republicans uh, trying to get a secure southern border. So that was a very dishonest statement. And I, I haven't heard any Democrats in Congress uh, agreeing with what the president said. I mean, even that is a stretch for uh, even the most liberal progressive Democrat. Right. I mean, nobody thinks he's tough on the border. Everyone knows he broke the, uh, the border. And now he's desperately trying to get something together before the election. Your thought? No, you're absolutely right. And the numbers speak for themselves, and especially when you look at the fentanyl deaths. Uh, China is waging a chemical war against the United States of America, and the transnational narco-criminal terrorists, the cartels, are responsible for it. We just had two Americans that were shot and killed by a cartel group just right across from Brownsville, Texas. And what are we doing about it? We have allowed this to happen. And now you have this incredible spike of Chinese nationals coming across our border. So you cannot uh, shift blame to anybody else. This administration is failing on so many fronts, Brian. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, real quick, 30 seconds. The, the subpoena now for the Secretary of State to give out those cables to talk about the warning they got before leaving Afghanistan. How much longer can the Secretary of State hold out from a subpoena? 
I don't think he should be able to hold out at all. As a matter of fact, that shows that they are trying to cover something up. Once again, it's the greatest military debacle that this country will ever know. And the fact that the Taliban is releasing photos of all the equipment that we left over there is just shameful. Yeah, and they still want aid from us. And I believe we might be giving humanitarian aid while they taunt us by fixing the vehicles that we left behind and saying, look at this. Uh, Colonel Allen West, it's a maddening time in American history. Thank you. Uh, Josh Kreishauer, next from Axios. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Ron, I got in. He was losing. There was no way it was over. He was dead. He was going to drop out. He was gone. And then when they asked him, is he going to run? He said, I have no comment. And a lot of people, political people said, sir, never bring that subject up. The voter doesn't care about that subject. But I do. And I think people do care about loyalty. When you help somebody, really help them. I mean, get him. And then he announces that essentially he's going to run against you. That's what he announced. Because when he said that, that means to me that you're going to run. And he's going to run. But he's getting crushed now in the polls. But not in all polls. Uh, there's an Axios poll out there that shows him up in Iowa and a dead heat in New Hampshire. Of course, that'll change if Governor Sununu gets into New Hampshire, but only so much. Let's see. And we, we don't think it's going to be a two-person race. We know that uh, Nikki Haley's formidable and is in there. Vivek Ramaswamy is in there. I think that uh, Mike Pence will be in. Mike Pompeo will be in. Looks like Governor Ron DeSantis will be in. And it looks like Senator Tim Scott could be in this week. Josh Krasauer joins us now, senior political correspondent at Axios. Josh, what's your reaction to the president's disdain and, uh, and astonishment that Ron DeSantis will be in? Historically, that's not that unusual. Uh, yeah, and if you look at everything Ron DeSantis has been doing uh, since launching the book tour uh, for the last uh, couple of weeks, it's, it, it's been a preparation for, for a presidential campaign. He's staffed up with some high-level uh, operatives for uh I guess not DeSantis specifically, but his his allied super PAC is is, is enlisting some pretty talented uh, strategists to help out uh, on, on the campaign side. So all all systems go. It looks like for for DeSantis, it's just a matter of when he makes the official announcement. So right now in Iowa, with the Axios poll, his favorability, Trump's favorability is at eighty one percent. Excuse me, uh, Ron DeSantis eighty one percent. Trump's at seventy four. Uh, Haley's favorability at 60 percent, Mike Pence at uh, 59 percent. So in New Hampshire, you have him in a dead heat overall. And in Iowa, you have him up 45-37. Uh, so DeSantis leading Trump 45-37. So do you think Trump is winning in most of the national polls? What do you think matters more? Well, look, number one, the head-to-head matchups in those early states show DeSantis either leading or tied when you actually add Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy and then other people are going to be running, uh, that dilutes a lot of the DeSantis support. So the same poll showed DeSantis doing well in Iowa, but behind when you have the full ballot test in New Hampshire. So that is sort of the challenge that Republicans face in that Donald Trump has a pretty solid lock over, you know, 30, 35 percent of the Republican vote. And DeSantis uh, is the other elephant in the room, but he's going to have to figure out whether he wants to kind of play for the sort of the non-MAGA, the non-Trumpy uh, vote, 
uh, and go for that, you know, 60, 70% out there that, that's up for grabs, or whether he wants to kind of try to pick off some of the, the MAGA support and run a much more uh, kind of populist MAGA-oriented campaign. And he's trying to figure out where he stands, and that's going to have a whole lot that, – that's going to be a lot more important than just looking at every, you know, a snapshot in time with these polls, whether it's national or state by state. Now, look, the early state polls or the early state outcomes matter more than, than the national polls because that's how our system works, that you have to do well in Iowa. You've got to do well in New Hampshire. You've got to show that you are sustainable in, in these early states that can give uh, any of the campaigns momentum heading into the to the bigger states and uh, other contests across the country. Mm-hmm. So it is an encouraging sign for DeSantis that he's doing better in Iowa, where he just was uh, a week or two ago, and in New Hampshire, where he's spending some time, than he is in the, in the national polls. But look, I, I, I think the trend lines have been consistent no matter whether you're talking about the state or the national polls, and that Trump was down. In a lot of these polls, by by quite a bit, a couple months ago, and he's gained momentum. He's leading by twenty plus points in the national polls. He's neck and neck in these early state polls. So, I mean, the the big picture is that DeSantis has lost ground, and he's going to need to figure out ways once he launches this campaign to draw contrasts with the former president and to catch up in the polls. Or you come out and say, I'm very similar. I'm just younger and more disciplined. That seems to be a little of the game plan that played out. You know, I don't have, I don't really know what it's like to pay hush money when he talked about the, uh, the lack of drama around him. Uh, that, and I mean, that to me seems to be the little of the game plan. The question is, Chris Christie doesn't think that type of thing works. He's like, get yeah, to go out there and try to destroy Trump. Well, you mentioned Chris Christie, who uh, was in New Hampshire yesterday. Sounds like he's moving towards his own presidential campaign. And if he runs, it, one of the things that I've noticed uh, from all the campaigns so far is that DeSantis and, and, and the other Republicans in the race, like Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy and everyone else looking to run, no one's really gone after Trump aggressively. No, no one's gone after Trump in the way that Chris Christie went after Marco Rubio in the 2016. And look, if Christie gets in the race, he, you know, I, I don't know if he has, you know, is, is, he's going to face long odds in winning the nomination, but he could play a pretty important role in being sort of the designated hitter uh, for the Republicans in terms of hitting Trump and going after him and making the case that he's not electable, making the case that he doesn't have the temperament to win uh, a second term in office. Uh, That could be an important role that DeSantis has been sort of shying away from, that Nikki Haley, she's barely mentioned Trump by name on on the campaign trail. Uh, Christie actually could be playing a very pivotal role if he gets in this race, maybe not as uh, as a front runner, but someone who could really define the stakes of this contest. So, you know, you talk about the Monmouth poll, 38 percent of Republicans consider themselves strong MAGA supporters, 28 percent support uh, the MAGA movement and 28 percent don't see themselves aligned with the so-called Make America Great Again movement. But Trump holds the iron grip, you said, of them. You also say this, just a thought that everybody thought when Ted Cruz, when everyone, when the, when the herd thinned and Ted Cruz was left against Trump, that people would flock to Cruz and they never did. Is that the? Is there anything different about the timeline with, the, and the and the talent of DeSantis as opposed to the talent of Cruz? Well, I think the, the biggest similarity is that Ted Cruz had this belief that you shouldn't go after Trump. That that you know he was going to fade on his own. That that ultimately all the other Republicans were going to side with the alternative to Trump back in 2016. That that was flawed. That that was a wrong strategy. He and it ended up you know 
causing Trump to perform even better than, than, than folks expected. You know, DeSantis, I think, is in, in a similar box. And, and look, that, that number, that stat you just cited, uh, Brian, it basically splits the Republican vote in thirds. You have a third that are very pro-Trump. You have a third that, that, that are supportive of the MAGA movement, but you know, have some reservations about aspects of it. And then you have the sort of critical the people who are more traditional Republicans uh, that make up about a third of the electorate on the Republican side. So the, the, the challenge for DeSantis see, is whether he thinks he can make inroads with that, you know, the MAGA third. Like I, I, he's been trying to do that, I think, a little bit with his comments on Ukraine to Tucker uh, last month and some of the comments on the culture war issues back in Florida. I mean, th- th- those are opportunities for DeSantis to crack some of Trump's base. But if you look at the, the, the numbers in that Monmouth poll, almost all of those MAGA voters are, are with Trump, not DeSantis. They, they are hardcore Trump supporters. So you know, I, I think DeSantis, as I wrote in that piece, Brian, uh, it, it probably would be smarter for DeSantis not to attack Trump aggressively, but to really draw sharp contrasts on policy, substance, and, and temperament um, and, and try to coalesce that middle slice of the Republican voting base and, and the people that want to change, that want someone different from Trump. And that's two-thirds, that's about what, 60 percent? I think it's about 60 percent of the Republican vote, according to the Monmouth poll. That's enough to, to, to win a majority if you play your hands effectively. But it's, a, it's hard to do. When, when Trump has that 35 percent lock of his own base, it's what makes it so challenging for DeSantis and, frankly, for any of the other Republican candidates looking to run. How do you feel about Trump's decision to embrace the January 6th alternative reality of it wasn't that bad and having the uh, convicted rioters sing from prison? Well, that's absolutely toxic politically for a general election. I mean, that, that is, you know, you're, you're alienating. All it's, the- to me, it's ridiculous. It was extreme. It, it, look, we, 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 Brian, we learned what happened when you had candidates in 2022 running on that type of message, and they, they lost in very red states and districts. Uh, so we've seen that that trial already tested, and it, it backfired. And it, it, it just it comes across as just very, very extreme. Uh, that was I was shocked to see that. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have been shocked, but that, <laughs> that, that, that for that for that to be the lead of the Waco uh, rally uh, for for the pre- former president was was, was pretty stunning. Um, so yeah, that now these days I don't even, you know I think I think there is sort of a you know a willingness to tolerate a whole lot of stuff from uh, the primary voters, uh, the Republican primary voters. So I I can't say that's going to make a, a huge difference in the polls, right. uh, but but I do think that the question of electability, the question of temperament, the question of extremism, boy, I mean that that, that those are those, those are laying out the stakes very very clearly in this Republican primary. Hey, let me uh, let you. I think Brett uh, uh, Brett Hume kind of sings your song, but I want people at home to hear it. Cut five. Now, what this president needs, not so much to get the nomination, he might be able to get that with a string of plurality uh, showings and primaries, but to, to get the presidency back, he's going to have to get people that did not vote for him in, in 2020 to vote for him in 2024. And I don't, does any of this, no matter how illegitimate this prosecution is, does any of this stuff uh, help him? <laughs> Him going on and on about it, belly aching about it everywhere he goes. Look, it's. An, I think uh, you know the prosecution may be no good. The others may not may fail, but is talking about them going to get him elected by people who didn't vote for him in 2020? And the answer is no. I don't think at all. Yeah, Brit, as usual, is, is, is on the money. <laughs> this, this is not a way to win re-election. I, you know, look, I, I 
it's hard to predict where, where the Republican primary electorate is at any given moment, but I don't think it helps with them either. I mean, sure, it may it may not affect his, as Britt said, that plurality uh, of, of the base in, in certain states, but it is not a winning message overall, and it's a message that is almost guaranteed to turn off the, the swing voters that make up uh, that decides the big elections against Biden. And, and we saw that in 2020 in, in, in very stark terms. Josh Kreisauer, our guest from Axios. Josh, I'll just be uh, I'll just be an observer in saying this. You could easily, if you're President Trump, say, look at the Middle East. I was moving on the Abraham Accords, isolated Iran. They were you, the Middle East was now actually unified around Israel. I had armed Ukraine to the point where an invasion was not imminent. There was no sign of it taking place. In fact, there was no invasion in Europe at all. I got NATO to pay uh, most of those NATO nations to pay up to their 10 percent they're supposed to be paying of their military budget. When it comes to China, I had the first phase of a trade deal done, and no one was talking about uh, basically militarizing the South China Sea. You could go around the globe and then talk about the economy. How do you like my unemployment? How do you like my growth? How do you like my inflation compared to what you left? What do you think about my energy policies? You know, and you have something to say. It's not like you've got to go spin it or find a, a nice bar graph that doesn't tell the whole story. You have a lot to say. I'm just wondering why he's choosing not to say it. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of policy, a lot of substance from his administration he could be talking about. But he instead, like, I mean, he likes to feed on grievance and he likes to be the outsider. He likes, he, he, I think he had a lot more fun. Brian running in 2016 as the insurgent than in 2020 when he was president and had a record to run on, even though you could point to all those things that were major successes, foreign policy and Middle East and, you know, the economy and so on. Um, he didn't want, you know, that, that's not his comfort zone. He likes to fight. He likes to go after his enemies. And um, look, that can be, that can feel good for him in the moment, but it's not the way to win. It's certainly not the way to win a general election. And it may not help him out, even in the primary, as, as things progress. I just have to point out another poll that you did not do, but it is noteworthy. Four in ten Democrats want Joe Biden to step aside in 2024, 44% overall, 30% say no preference, 25% say run again. With the delay in him announcing his reelection and polls like that certainly hitting the White House, what do you think's going on? Yeah, well, I think a lot of that has to do with the president's age. He would be 86 years old at the end of a second term. It's, it's consistent with all the other polls. I mean, we, we, it, we've seen poll after poll of the Democratic electorate showing a majority of Democrats being uncomfortable with Biden running again. But look, Democratic lawmakers, Democratic strategists, Democratic officials, they're all planning for a Biden reelection campaign. Usually presidents announce in April or May, and that, that everything I've heard suggests that the Biden White House is on that same timetable. And I look, I think they look at the midterm elections, and they know that Biden's job approval is where it is. It's in the low 40s. It's not not great. A lot of people are not 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 not, not thrilled with this president, but he doesn't spot, inspire the same degree of opposition that that like Trump does right now. And 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 more importantly, like he feels like the playbook that he used in the midterms of saying, well, I'm not. You may not love me, but boy, look at the opposition. There there are these ultra MAGA types. He thinks that playbook can work again in 2024, especially if he, he runs against Donald Trump. Have you seen so, anything, Josh, of anybody else mobilizing or a shadow campaign forming? 
I mean, Marianne Williamson. That's it. That's it. Uh, I, like I, I, I've said that I think New Hampshire, you know, the Democrats are punishing New Hampshire because uh, they want more diversity in their early state lineup. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if that the New Hampshire contest may not count for anything in terms of delegates, but there could be some entrepreneur who <laughs> decides to run from Biden on the left and try to make some waves in, in a state like New Hampshire. But um, no, I don't think anyone who has an elected background who has political experience is going to uh, risk their reputation by challenging Biden because the party and all the leadership are 100 percent in all right. Joe Biden. All right, Josh. Uh, Josh Krasher, uh, senior political correspondent at Axios. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. You got it. Listen, uh, we gave you a lot. one 866 So weigh in. Listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, we're back. Let's go out to John. Listen to WDBO in Florida. Hey, John. Hey, morning, Brian. Brian, I really uh, agreed a thousand percent with your analysis of, of the fact that Donald Trump has got the experience. Uh, we don't have time for a learning curve. That that was fantastic. I also agreed with what you were saying about uh, how he's kind of peeing in his own soup by attacking his own teammates like Ron DeSantis and some of the others, rather than focusing on his own accomplishments and, and, the, and the flaws of Biden and all these knuckleheads that he's uh, that are ruining our country. My question to you is, you know, I mean, for, for years now, we've been hearing people with good sense trying to get the president's ear to, to, to point out some of these flaws that we can all see, but he doesn't seem to see them. What who is it that can get through to him to talk some of these sense, talk some sense into him as far as the most not- successful, the most successful have been Lindsey Graham. And he's about five. He's about uh, batting 300 uh, out of a possible thousand like him, you know, and he'll do and he'll listen. But he's got to see results. And the thing is, how much does he want to win? And the thing is, you can't imagine. I saw the pressure in his face yesterday. I saw the weight of having your lawyer being forced to testify for your your top assistants being forced to testify behind to a grand jury. I saw the pressure of knowing that you have a 17-year-old son that might see their father in handcuffs at the age of 76 years old. I saw all that pressure in his face. He wasn't a, a carefree guy yesterday. And I think he's just got to find a way to compartmentalize and say, I know I'm under pressure, but if I want to win, I got to be happy. And positive again. And those guys, guys, I'm so proud of you. I'm proud of what you accomplished, but you're not me. And I love what Bill Maher said. If I, He said, Donald Trump should use this. You don't go watch the tribute band if the band is still available to be get tickets to. And Trump is still selling tickets. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from 48th and 6th, right in New York, New York. And uh, heard around the country, around the world, we have a big hour coming away. Brian Rotella will make sense of what AI means. And they say, you know, listen to this. Bill Gates came out and said it. You think that the, uh, the computer revolutionized the world? Yes. 
Do I think the iPhone revolutionized the world? Yes. They say that is nothing compared to what AI will do. So Brian Rotel will break down that, its effect on business. And Jerry Willis is going to be with us, too, from FPN. Then I'll do a simulcast on Stuart Varney and company, uh, and we'll talk about what's happening with the horrific shooting over in Nashville. So we'll do all that. Take your calls. Uh, but let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. Professors have been telling students uh, to not like their country. You know, when students talk about uh, their nation, it's either to demean the United States, to degrade the United States. Yeah, it's amazing, too. That is just one Syracuse University kid. Uh, student. America's changing, according to the latest Wall Street Journal poll. Patriotism no longer ranks high. Either does hard work. Either does family. How do we get the, our act straightened out? And what's the difference between the parties? We'll discuss it. Number two. It wasn't just Republicans, Democrats. Just listen to the CEO. When we, he got asked the question, is the Chinese government spying on Americans through TikTok? He goes, well, it's a different term of spying, right? Why would we ever allow that? Why don't they don't allow it? China calls us out for possibly getting rid of TikTok. Wow. That's from a country that banned Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and Google. And they're condemning us. We have to get rid of it. Number one. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, The bank would have to get along by itself. And maybe they could have. What happened with the bank's interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell and I beat the hell out of him. (laughs) 2024, Trump sat down with Sean Hannity. We have the interview, what it contains, the solutions, his complaints, his rages against DeSantis. We're going to take a look at the GOP field, uh, and more and more Dems are leaving the Biden camp. So they did a poll. They say four in ten Democrats want Joe Biden to step aside in 2024. Four in ten. That's a Monmouth poll. 44% to be specific, 30% no preference, 25% Biden runs again. How do you run again with those numbers? The question is, who's next? Have you ever seen it? The most powerful position in the world. And there's the biggest party. They have more Democrats than Republicans, and they can't get a legitimate contender. If you look at Gavin Newsom, he looks the part, but he's been a terrible governor. Look at that uh, lunatic over in Illinois. How unproductive is he? And then you look around. Jared Polis, maybe he's without charisma, but a decent moderate record in Colorado. Elizabeth Warren was vehemently rejected, as was Klobuchar in the last primary. The vice president, are you nuts? Of course not. The secretary of transportation, Judge. can you be more of an epic fail than that? On the other side, you have seven or eight people that Democrats have to say, well, they're successful. I don't know if they're going to win, but they'll be successful. But the president of the United States spoke yesterday, and he took aim at Ron DeSantis. Uh, this is a, a long story. I'll try to get through some of it, but I don't think it's actually true. Uh, Ron DeSantis, here's the fact. Ron DeSantis, a successful congressman, he is a Navy uh, veteran who has a, a whole law degree from Harvard. He has an undergrad from Yale, a four-year starter in baseball, who won right to Congress after writing a book. And he writes that book, and he sees Donald Trump become president. He starts defending him because he looks at the Russia situation on his own and says, this guy's not guilty. This is crap. But Donald Trump is upset that he's running against him. And that's why this story is the one he's using. Cut one. And I knew Ron a little bit. I didn't know him very well, but I knew him a little bit. I knew him as somebody that defended me. So what happened with Ron is the following. He came to see me. He was getting killed. He was being crushed. 
Adam Putnam, it was over. I have many people that I know that worked for Adam Putnam. They said it was like a nuclear, I hate to use this expression, it was like a nuclear weapon went off when you endorsed because they considered the race to be over. They had the race. He had millions and millions of dollars, and he was way up in the polls. He was beating Ron by 30 points or something. It was over. Ron came to see me, tears in his eyes. He said, I need you to do me a big favor. First, he asked for the I can't even hear it anymore. I mean, you know, you know he didn't have tears in his eyes. The thing about Ron DeSantis, they wanted him to show more emotion. If he lost the governor's race, he would have done something else. He had a young family, was tired of living in Washington. He slept. He's one of these guys that slept on his, uh, in his office on his couch. He tried to get home as much as possible. He said, why am I doing this? I'm in the minority. I don't really have much power after I lost the majority. I really got to do something else. And he said, let me just try to run for governor. Rick Scott is term limited out. And he did, get, without that endorsement, he probably doesn't win. I get that. But you can't say you don't know him. You can't say they didn't talk constantly. You read his book, you find out about it. He worked with the Army Corps of Engineers for various different projects, worked with him in terms of the COVID and the pandemic response, worked with Governor DeSantis to make sure Florida was firmly in President Trump's column. The guy, they worked together. You just say, listen, I'm upset they'll run against me. If you're Donald Trump, to me, the message is real serious. You know, Mike Pompeo. 50-something, Nikki Haley experience certainly made me proud. Ron DeSantis, up-and-coming star. But they're going to run on my policies and do what I do. Why go with them? You got the real thing. The top of my game now. Got some legal issues. I'm tackling them one by one. And you don't want somebody who's going to learn the job. Things are too serious now. And then if things get tight, you're one-on-one, you're on the stage, you come back and you get personal. It'll be like DeSantis. Excuse me, it'll be like... Uh, Bush, W. Bush and McCain. And remember how personal it got with Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bush 41 and Bob Dole got really ugly for. okay, But there's just no reason to pretend you don't know him is so bizarre. So when asked, by the way. Polled by Axios, who would win Iowa one on one, DeSantis or Trump is DeSantis. Monmouth polled nationally. It's Trump. In New Hampshire, it's even. So it's a tight race. Kevin McCarthy wants to see everybody get along. Cut for it. There is enough problems that the Democrats have brought us. We have inflation. We have a border that's wide open. We pay more for gasoline and energy. We've got a world moving with war happening. We've got now China moving into Saudi, moving into the Middle East, bringing Saudi Arabia and Iran together. That used to be the leadership of America. I don't think Republicans should go after one another. We need to bring this nation back, bring Republicans in, independents and Democratic, Democrats, too, because we cannot handle four more years of Joe Biden. We can't afford it. And that's what the president should be saying. Uh, this is my record. This is what I've done. This is what I'll do again. Uh, look at the foreign policy. My goodness, after the Afghanistan disaster, which how outrageous is this? The secretary of state won't handle over cables. It showed 23 cables of people saying, do not pull out of Afghanistan with this current plan. It will be a disaster. Yesterday, they posted pictures of all of our equipment that's been repaired. All of our Humvees and armored vehicles that are out there, the trailers, the heavy equipment, we left it behind in a panic while we left our people behind, too. 
So I want to switch over to, and that's what the president could be running on. I mean, to me, he armed the Ukrainians. He trained the Ukrainians. He should take pride in that. He could say they never welled up trooper on the Ukrainian border when I was there. They took Crimea under Obama. They didn't touch it with me. When it came to the Middle East, I got rid of ISIS, and I established the Abraham Accords. What did this guy do? He immediately isolated Saudi Arabia and said they were the villain nation and stopped them uh, from funding and stopped funding of the of the uh, of the uh, Yemenis, of those taking on the Houthi rebels in Yemen, which was financed by by the former government, which was financed by the Iranians. So everything they did has been wrong. That's what he could run on. And this is the guy with all the experience in President Biden. I want to get over to TikTok. I didn't discuss that enough in the first hour. So get this. China's quote from their foreign ministry spokesperson. U.S. should respect fair competition and stop suppressing foreign companies. When it comes to banning TikTok, what people have to understand is nobody's compared uh, talking about competition. If Instagram loses to a French company, Australian company, a British company, German company, Hungarian company, Norway, any of our allies, game on. But they happen to be losing to a company right now that is rushed, that is China, and China's not using it for an advantage. They're only they're trying to make money, sure. But they're also trying to infiltrate a society in every way. This is just the latest. And for them to come out and say the U.S. should respect fair competition, how that doesn't pass the smell, laugh, or giggle test. U.S. technology giant giants have been pulled out of China since 2010. Google Maps and Gmail effectively blocked by the Chinese government. Google search engine, too. Meta-owned Facebook has been blocked in China since 2009 as part of a government crackdown against activists following deadly riots in the Xinjiang province, which resulted in a genocide. China's restriction to foreign media platforms and censorship of non-government material has been dubbed the Great Firewall of China. And they want us to open up. Instagram, blocked in China since 2014. Now is completely censored. Twitter, Blocked in China since 2009, part of a government crackdown against activism following deadly riots in Xinjiang province. And they want to know why we're blocking and potentially banning their app? This is an enemy. What do people not understand? This is an enemy. I'm not asking you to to sing uh, God Bless America, but can you be not anti-American and say I'd rather hang out and watch dance videos on TikTok? Can you be pro-American in something? When we come back, we find out about AI and find out about where China is with it and how it's affecting business uh, with Brian Rotella. Then we'll talk to Jerry Willis. Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. What I really want your listeners to know, and this is really critical to get, is that underneath the hood, there is a new class, new generation of AI that was invented in 2017. I won't bore you with the details technically, but it started getting deployed in 2020. It's called a transformer. And what that did is it treats the entire world as language. And and then you just pump it full of more language, the entire Internet. So you have this AI read the entire Internet. All PDFs, all images, all text, all, you know, everything that's ever been written. And it gets sucked into this one model. And the thing about this new class of AI is the more data you give it, it suddenly it pops out with emergent capabilities that no engineer even knew were going to pop out. 
That, that is uh, Tristan Harris, one of the foremost experts on social media and AI, and it scares him. Brian Rotel, attorney, founder and CEO of Senior Partner, Genco Legal, uh, joins us now. Brian, you believe that AI is already transforming the legal profession. Do you do some, I guess, do, can you do some cases, trial cases? Do you ask for advice with, like, this chatbot GBT? Well, hey, Brian. Uh, yeah, uh, right now what, what AI is doing is predominantly the stuff that our paralegals have done over the last 30 or 40 years, but also junior attorneys. It's reviewing documents, it's doing legal research, and it's um, finding things if you had a lawsuit or something in discovery instead of a human going through all this stuff. But, Brian, we're like 36 months away from it actually making predictions because it's already the technology can do it on legal outcomes. So you're going to decide whether you go to a trial based on potentially what the AI is saying. Even in the criminal space, it's going to start potentially giving recommendations on what the length of some types of of sentencing can be. So what I've told folks is, you know, we went literally, and I just heard your last guest talking about the technology in the legal profession. We've jumped from literally the Flintstones to we're going to be in the Jetsons in about 24 to 36 months here. And my industry, unlike healthcare, where I spend a lot of time, as you know, healthcare has been all over AI, and there's some amazing, really cool things going on. They're really prepared for it. The legal industry is completely unprepared. And the two things that concern me the most about it is how we're training our folks for AI, meaning in the law schools, and what the investment is these kids are getting in law schools. And the second thing is inherent bias. How are we preparing them for what is and what we're already seeing, some inherent bias in AI? Uh, because, you know, we already seen it politically, but they say the next, they're already on the fourth version of chatbot GBT, whatever it is. So now, for example, if you have to write a brief, will this write your brief for you? If you're in law school, will it do, will it, uh, do a lot of your papers? Yeah, well, and here's the thing with law school. Law school, there's this, I call it the myth of the prepackaged lawyer. People have a perception of, uh, people have a lot of perceptions of lawyers and a lot of them are right on the bad side. But the perception is that someone comes out of law school and they can pretty much do write a will. They could try a case. Brian, when you come out of law school, most people know what they can do, hopefully pass the bar exam. They teach you still the same things I learned 25 years ago in law school and people were learning 100 years ago in law school is about how to read law cases and what were decisions. That's still how we're teaching people. My analogy right now is we're teaching people how to write a stagecoach when we should be teaching them how to drive or to how to manage the process of an automated vehicle. So, yes, yes, this AI can write a brief. Now, the question is, you still cannot outsource the legal judgment. So are we training our law students on what would be the legal judgment to look at that brief and make sure that that brief is accurate? And then getting back to the other point I said, if it's pulling, as your other guest said, from all of this language, and you look at, like, GPT-3, not to get too wonky here, but chat GPT, this thing, like, draws from, like, a half a trillion words. Who's checking that? We should be training our law students and young lawyers if they want to survive in this profession. Is this accurate? Is this in the best interest of the client? And here's the other thing that I feel, and this hasn't happened in law schools and, quite frankly, didn't happen when I was there either. My belief on how we're going to survive and thrive with AI, AI as a tool, is by doing something that I think has been completely lost. I don't know if you agree, Brian, which is the ability to interact and the soft skills. The more we've gotten, tech, the more technology we've gotten, I can see it all the time with communications with young lawyers and clients. They're not 
communicating with clients the way we did before technology because, let's face it, the last 20 years they've had their faces and screens as compared to learning how to build relationships with strangers, which is critical when you're having trying to give somebody some challenging legal advice. Well, I mean, that's absolutely true. That's in every aspect of life. But I would say this. It just seems to me on a jury trial with 12 human beings, let's say, or a grand jury with 25 human beings, um, I'm just wondering – can you ever have AI effectively predict how these people interact and will come up with a verdict? Yeah, I, I think it can get to the point where it's going to say these are the large percentages. Again, remember, then let's say that it's uh, when you're when you're trying cases, and I tried cases before, you're ultimately making a decision based on risk, whether there's AI or not. Should I settle the case? Is it eight out of ten times am I going to win? Um, and again, if it's in the criminal space and your liberty is going to be taken away or your clients is, you're making your, your decision based on predictions. So I do think what AI is going to do is it's going to start telling the people, ultimately the lawyers, the risk managers, what is what do I have to explain to my client as far as the risk of what the outcome is going to be? But to the answer is AI, are we going to have like C-3PO trying a case in the next 10 years? No, I don't see that happening. You're still going to have lawyers that are going to need to be trying cases. Here's the issue. It isn't really going to impact me. I've been practicing for, you know, it's getting close to 25 years. But it took a lot of training to do what I do today, Brian. What are these young lawyers going to do if they're not getting trained on, let's say, how to try a case? Because all of the work that you learn, all those repetitions that you, you would do in looking at research, looking at documents, is being done by the AI. How are we going to train this generation? And use this analogy, it's like drones compared to fighter pilots. We're not going to have any fighter pilots because the law firms are going to be using the drones to do all of the work that we've been using right. more junior lawyers to do. Uh, uh, you know what I think, too, Brian? I also think, look at GPS. I used to be great at directions. I used to break out a map before every place I went and saw everything and knew what north, south, what would. Uh, I now I don't even think. And it's definitely hurt me. I lost my sense of direction. So I'm wondering what else I would lose with, uh, with AI. But it'll be transformational and we can't stop it. Brian Rotella, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. All right. uh, When we come back, uh, Jerry Willis will be joining us, and we'll go over what's happened with the banks and this economy right now. From his mouth to to your your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. Right now, what's unclear for us is how much of these banking stresses are leading to a widespread credit crunch. And then that credit crunch, you're right, just as you said, would then slow down the economy. This is something we are monitoring very, very closely. Now, on one hand, such uh, strains could then bring down inflation, so we have to do less work with the federal funds rate to bring the economy into balance. But right now it's unclear how much of an imprint these banking stresses are going to have on the economy, but it's something to watch very carefully, and that's what we're focused on. Neil Kashkari talking about some of the failures of the regional banks, some of which are on forced mergers with UBS, what we're seeing now uh, with Republic and then SVB. With me right now in studio, Jerry Willis, anchor and personal finance reporter with FBN, host of Fox Nation uh, special. It's a brand new Fox Nation special called Real Tough Women, which we'll get to shortly. But, Jerry, uh, Neil Kashkari was saying he wouldn't condemn the San Francisco Fed. But he said in Minneapolis, where I'm at, I wouldn't have allowed that to happen, essentially. And then he talked about he does not know for sure what's going to happen with the regional banks because he has not put them through the stresses. What's your reaction? Well, look, I don't think Silicon Valley Bank was a bank that was too big to fail, not by a long shot. And there were warning signals for literally years 
uh, to the San Francisco Fed. I, I don't know what uh, the regulators were doing, but they were not holding this man's feet to the fire at SVB. As we know, the CEO of that bank was also on the board of the San Francisco Fed. So that kind of tight circle of influence It just leads to headaches, and here it has done it again. And let me tell you, once you bail out SVB in the way they did that, then you cannot say no to other regional banks. But Janet Yellen said she would. Remember, she she indicated, she goes, yeah, we'll we'll, we'll choose which ones are vital. Fantastic. I, I can't imagine somebody that smart would say something that seemed fundamentally so unfair. Here's what President Trump said yesterday, cut three. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, The bank would have to get along by itself, and maybe they could have. What happened with the bank is interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell, and I beat the hell out of him. I was not a big fan of Powell. He was recommended by some people. I didn't like him. Uh, He's uh, too interest rate happy. What you do is you get the oil prices down. That's bigger than interest rates. The only thing. And what happened is we took an oil and now we take an interest rates. Those banks failed because the interest rates were too high. They stupidly bought long-term treasuries. You thought? Well, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, this is a bank that shouldn't have been bailed out. Uh, as I was saying, it's because now you've got to bail out other banks. You know, what do you do if you're a Midwestern bank somewhere and you have problems don't you just go to the Fed and say, hey, you bailed out SVB, you got to bail out me. And then this, you know, the part of the problem is that the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, is changing what she's suggesting the remedy is every single day. We hear something different from her. We don't know what to believe. That's why you've seen some of the sell-off we've seen in past days in the markets. So tell me if you think this is a scenario. If he is president, he's not going to kill pipelines. He's going to be pro-oil and gas. He is not going to put out this so-called rescue package, which puts two trillions, which I, I think even Larry Summers says we did not need, especially in the green energy. And then you argue that inflation does not go up as high and doesn't stay as long. So therefore, you don't have this. So you could actually play out the Trump policies and then you could say, what would you rather have? Well, absolutely true. I mean, I don't know what we don't know exactly. Did we make a mistake? Is that what you're saying? Or are you with the two trillion rescue package? Oh, yeah. That's what I'm saying. That bakes in more inflation. And that's exactly what you've seen. A lot of the money that's been spent in the last several quarters by consumers comes from that money. That's what's pumping up higher prices is the fact that you have so many dollars chasing too few goods. The prices go up. We pay more. Interest rates are higher. And now, ironically, what's happening in the wake of what we've been through is that now we got a credit crunch. So now we have – it's going to be more expensive for people to borrow money. Rates right. are going to go higher. It's just this spiral of negative impacts. And, and I don't want to try to into foreign policy, but they say that Russia gets aggressive when the price of oil gets high. And guess what? The price of oil got high. We pull back from the market. It, it affects the price, you would say, negatively. I believe it would be negatively. They start getting a lot of money for their for their uh for their oil and suddenly they realize I think I want to take Ukraine. Yeah. And then I, I you, think, that affects oil prices, too, in the economies so around the, the world. So the dominoes that occur from these policies, the changes that happen, the ripples that go through the economies are significant. And 
you know, I have to say having a businessman in charge is not a bad idea. Somebody who understands economics. I think the problem with the Biden administration has been and continues to be that they don't understand basic fundamental economics. Buy and sell. They don't understand what makes an economy go. And it creates real problems on the ground. And Jerry Willis on top of that, too. They're really into solar panels, green energy, and we don't have the material uh, to make that successful. We're making a deal, I guess, with Japan now. Uh, but, Jerry, you're excited. Not only do you like coming and doing the radio show, because we get a chance <laughs> to talk instead of four-minute segments. Love it. But you have a brand-new series, Real Tough Women, that comes out on the 29th. Um, uh, and uh, you also have the, the Fearless and Proud podcast. But tell me about Really Tough Women. Who are you going to be focused on first? So we're going to talk about a woman named Allison Levine, and I think you have some sound we can play so you can actually hear her voice. She's would, would you rather explain it first or you want to tell me I'll who she is first? I'll explain her yeah. first. So she is a woman who's completed what they call the Adventure Grand Slam. She's climbed seven of the highest peaks around the planet, and then she skied the North and South Poles dragging 100 pounds of equipment behind her. I mean, imagine this. She is amazing, born with a hole in her heart. Uh, She's from uh, out west in the desert. And as she was growing up, she was like, I want nothing more than to be cold. So she started climbing these mountains at 33. Wow, I don't feel that way. Uh, (laughs) But here is Allison Levine, cut 44. Talk to us about the death zone on Everest. What is that? They call it the death zone for a really good reason. And that's because at that elevation... Uh, human life can no longer be sustained and your body is literally starting to die. Literally starting to die? What do you mean? Uh, It starts to pull all the blood out of your fingers and toes and it wants to pull all the blood uh, around your vital organs because your body knows you can live without these, but you can't live without your heart, your lungs. Wow. So she even knows what descending into real trouble is. She sure does. And, and and I really wanted to talk to her because I wanted the inspiration she could provide to our viewers, right? And she says that whenever she felt like she couldn't go another step, she would convince herself to take just one more step. She knew she didn't have to be the strongest or the fastest. She had to be the one who wouldn't give up. Endurance. You also have somebody else uh, you focus on, Amber Smith. Yes. Uh, so, and a soldiers and spies. Okay, so she's amazing. So if you met this woman on the street, you'd say, former cheerleader, you know, so cute, so bouncy. She was a Kiowa helicopter pilot during Iraq and Afghanistan. And those helicopters are small. They're two-seaters. They have no doors. You shoot out the door. She both flew and shot these guns. And she said they would fly in so close to the enemy, she could see their eyes. She knew what they were wearing. She could see the guns they had. I mean, her stories about protecting, backing up, uh, fiercely fighting on behalf of our ground troops in both of those wars, just amazing. Here's Amber Smith. We were flying on a night mission, and we were conducting reconnaissance. We thought we saw something suspicious, and we did come under enemy fire. We got hit with AK-47 rounds, and I had a round land about 12 inches behind my spine. And, yeah, so when you know you got hit and you we felt a massive con- concussion in the aircraft, uh, and it's dark out, every, the entire cockpit blacks out, and you don't know how bad the damage is in the back, but you know you were hit. Uh, it definitely is um, it, It's an intense moment. I'd say so. Yes, an intense moment. So she grows up in Salmon River, Washington. She's the daughter of men who have flown in 
in uh, World War II. She has a legacy. She decides after 9-11 to pursue that legacy and, and to get involved. And it's just an incredible tale of perseverance and going where very few women have gone. You know what's so interesting is I did for Fox Nation uh, uh, women voting, 1919. Yeah. And I just think the perceptions of what they people thought or society, not just America, society thought women can do. And where we're at today, those women just fighting for the right to vote when they were legitimately probably running their houses and doing everything and the right to work. They've thought after World War Two is like now that the men are back, go back to the kitchen. Uh, that never happened again. But just to think. I feel as though that's totally natural to see extraordinary women. But to think what they would have thought 100 years ago to see women make this type of impact. You know, though, I, I in, having spent so much time thinking about this, at every turn you see women doing amazing things, right? They generally tend, many of them, to ignore the rules and go do what they want to do. Right. And that's what's so exciting to hear about. All right. So listen, uh, how do we get this? Just go get the Fox Nation app. When does this drop? It drops on Wednesday. It drops tomorrow. Join us. So wait a second. Does the whole series drop or one at a time? Whole series. Does the whole series will be there? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to love it. You want to meet these women. Get the Fox Nation app. Listen. Watch. The pictures are amazing. Right. And, and anything you do is top quality. And you can see Jerry all over the uh, FBN and Fox News channel. Jerry Willis, thanks so much. Thank you, Brian. Great to see you. Back in a moment, we do uh, a simulcast to Stuart Varney, your arch rival, Jerry. Your arch rival on FBN in just a moment. Brian Kilmeade. I love him. I think you do. Now, the Brian Kilmeade Show joins Fox Business's Varney and Company with Stuart Varney, live on your radio and on Fox Business. Here's Brian Kilmeade. Yeah, I cannot wait to talk to Stuart. It'll be great. Uh, meanwhile, uh, too, don't forget One Nation coming up in just five days uh, at 8 o'clock. We'll have some great topics for you there, too. And then afterwards, I get done with Stuart when he comes back on on FBN. I'll be able to squeeze in some calls on the back half. So we have everything on 2024 to banning of TikTok to China calling us out and saying we should not stop our free market while they ban Google, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Really fantastic. Uh, Let's listen in now. 51 Eastern time. Suddenly, miraculously, Brian Kilmeade will appear right there. There he is. Brian The White House came out and blamed Republicans for the deadly shooting in Nashville. Watch this. Roll it. In his State of the Union, the president called on Congress to do something to stop the epidemic of gun violence, tearing families apart, tearing communities apart. How many more children have have to be murdered before Republicans in Congress will step up and act to pass the assault weapons ban? to close loopholes in our background in our in our background check system or to require the safe storage of guns unbelievable uh, so inappropriate so inappropriate so inappropriate we were expecting it and i think it's outrageous Go and ahead. she read it like she does everything Stuart. so you can't say well the press secretary was off the reservation not true read the whole thing there yeah. to say you saw weapon ban and they didn't do with it is this the same president that came out and commented on how much ice cream he was going to eat and how much yeah. ice cream he had in his refrigerator before he made a single comment about the shooting? Yes, I'll answer that question yeah. for you. Number two, John Cornyn and others took a lot of heat. 
when they looked at what happened at Uvalde and they said, look, maybe we could do some things here. Looked at the shooting in Buffalo for kids under 18. They become 18-year-olds. They were a problem at 17. They get an expunged, uh, expunged record. They started doing some things from gun reform. They praised the bipartisan move on gun reform. And a lot of people on the right, including people on this channel, were very critical. And this is why. Because when you show that you're going to budge when it comes to your Second Amendment, the Democrats keep coming back for more and more and more, never acknowledging. If you are a true leader, you say, I really appreciate what Republicans and Democrats were able to do before. I have a few things when we analyze what happened here that I'd like to suggest. But let's see what the investigation reveals instead of going to my agenda. So it's really offensive what happened and with those words. Uh, did you see this? An IRS agent visited the home of the Twitter files journalist Matt Taibbi on the very same day he testified before Congress. They claim it was an, over an issue with two of Mr. Taibbi's previous tax returns. You know, Jason Chaffetz was on the show earlier. He says, look, there's no way this was just a coincidence. Brian, they seem to be weaponizing again the IRS. Stuart, this is everything people were afraid of when he decided to add 80,000 agents and then also allow some of them to carry guns. Matt Taibbi, while he is talking about the Twitter files, which was exposed to him by Elon Musk, and he was able to report what really went on through the pandemic and through the last election. At the same time, they're knocking on his door, the IRS, asking about a 2018 and 2021 uh, uh, file, files, which they say there's problems with his identity. And so Matt Taibbi said, kind of weird for someone to knock on your door when an email will do, number one. Number two, call and say, if you want to come in, well, I'll come in. Number three, it looks like he is due a reimbursement. So he's actually due money from the IRS. Not only is there taxes, you know, when you're freelance, it really depends a lot of things. You've got to be very vigilant about how much you're declaring right away, however you want to do it. So he's probably was freelance, does a lot of work on the side. So I imagine his tax returns are uh, got to be challenged. You know, like are a bit of a challenge to do, not typical with the journalists. So for them to do that is a message. And also factor in how he was treated uh, when his testimony. They didn't listen to what he said. They just questioned his intent and his agenda. And that's the same thing when you knock on his door and ask about the IRS, the same attitude. So I think there's a real problem in this country when you weaponize government, which, by the way, is the name of the committee that Jim Jordan chairs. I've got a minute left. I'm going to change the subject. I want to talk to you about the new season of Ride to Work. It's out today. I'm in the first episode, and you're featured on there as well. You and Abby were stuck in the car for three hours, I understand. Right, Brian? Right. She's the best. But I I get on people's nerves for five minutes during these segments. Can you imagine uh, she must be a saint or she could apply for nunhood if that is a thing for spending three and a half hours with me. But this is the thing. Well, there's too much traffic on Long Island. I told them if I get in the car, guys, at 2.30, I'm not getting home for two or three hours. They laughed. I said, drop me at the train. They said, we would never do that. I go, please, drop me at the train. But that's if you listen around the country, watch around the country, do not go try to leave New York City and go to New Jersey or Long Island or Connecticut after 2.30 unless you have a lot right. of free time and a lot of, uh, I guess, a iTunes account. Or you're able and, to get to get a podcast you really enjoy. And don't laugh too much at my embarrassing American accent, which I tried out on Abby during that show. But yeah. we'll be watching. Hey, Brian, you're all right. See you again soon. All right. Here's what's coming up. Uh, yeah, that's that's funny. Uh, that's true. Uh, check out Fox Nation. I was able to sit down, actually ride with Abby about a year ago it was.
And what I was doing is I was hosting the 7 o'clock show, and I could do it from my house. Uh, and then I had to work till 2.30 because I, of course, do uh, the radio show till 2, and I had to hit it to. So I did that, and then I go, guys, are you serious? So we end up having to talk, and they have a camera in front of us, and they got a, two cameras in the car, and you get to hear uh, my greatest weakness. And I have a few weaknesses, not many. A lot of people say, are you sure? And I kept asking myself, yeah, there is one. I hate gum chewing. So Abby chews gum during it. It's my biggest challenge. Uh, Joe, listening on Long Island. Hey, Joe. Hi, Brian. Good morning. Listen, I'm I'm speaking for MAGA because I'm a diehard MAGA guy, you know. And DeSantis, the way I feel, just to be honest, He's a good man. Trump should not call him names, but the primary's already begun. We know he's coming in. He's getting. He's a. I call him a groom rhino establishment puppet by the Bushes. He's going to govern the way Cheney, Bushes, and McConnells tell him. In the end, he's going to be bought and paid for. Trump is not. Now, Trump. He's Trump without the baggage. MAGA doesn't need, yeah. and the country. Joe, that's based on nothing. Trump. It's based on nothing. His only interaction with the Bushes. Well, Bush 41, they were both captains of the Yale team. He's very critical in his book of Bush 43 and his foreign policy. He respects them, but he doesn't worship them. From the Fox News radio studios in Midtown Manhattan, it's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. My privilege this hour to bring on um, Roy White. Uh, played 50 seasons with the Yankees, couple with Japan. Came back and coached. He's got a brand new book out. You're going to love his story. If you're not a Yankee fan, you're going to love the type of person he is uh, and what he accomplished along the way. You might, you might be able to relate to that more than you can other uh, legends like, let's say, Reggie Jackson or others. Uh, also, standing by is Dr. Lisa Stroman. We want to make sense of what happened in Nashville. I don't know if it's even possible, but from what we know, we'll do that. There's also TikTok and the depression with kids and what Utah is doing, putting limits on kids and their use of social media, letting them only use it from 630 to 11 o'clock at night. And there's some other restrictions in between. I find it fascinating. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Our investigations tell us that she was a former student uh, at the school. I don't know what grade she's attended or grades. She does identify as transgender. Yeah, there you go. John Drake uh, talking about the shooter, uh, transsexual. Another horrific shooting, this time in Nashville, a private school. The killer dead, three nine-year-olds dead. Uh, Meanwhile, she killed six. Six overall were uh, nine years old. How does this make any sense? Number two. It wasn't just Republicans, Democrats. Just listen to the CEO. When we he got asked the question, is the Chinese government spying on Americans through TikTok? He goes, well, it's a different term of spying, right? Why would we ever allow that? I don't know is the short answer. China calls us out for possibly banning TikTok. Wow, that's kind of rich. From a country that bans Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Instagram, you're blaming us for wanting to ban your uh, your app, which is doing nothing but poisoning America and taking our vital information? Number one. I wouldn't have supported the bailout. Uh, the bank would have to get along by itself, and maybe they could have. What happened with the bank's interest rates went too high. And, you know, I had my own situation with Powell, and I beat the hell out of him. 
He did. 2024, Trump sat down with Sean Hannity. The interview contained solutions, complaints, and rages against DeSantis. We're going to look at the GOP field as more and more Dems are leaving Biden's camp. In fact, uh, four of ten do not want him to run again. With me right now is Dr. Lisa Stroman, attorney and psychologist, mental health advocate, an expert in the intersection of psychology and technology. Dr. Stroman, we don't know much about this 28-year-old shooter, female, that was wanted to be use her pronouns, he and him, was becoming a male. And we don't know the motivation yet, but a manifesto is out there. From what you see, can you make any sense of this? Does this fit any profile of a school shooter? Well, thanks for having me on again, Brian. I it 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 is definitely something you would look at as a shooter, where you've got a history of potentially something that happened in a school, whether like a psychological, emotional bullying, something that they're holding against that school. What we can see, or what I know of it from the news, is that she was there uh, in the early in her early elementary years. Um, and so we don't really know whether or not it, it had anything to do with the fundamentalism, like her mom is very uh, into religion, and whether or not she's taking that out in, into the school. Um, so it, there's a lot that's, like, floating right now. I, I'm, I'm really concerned at the fact that we are addressing this as um, more of a gender issue and a gun issue than a mental health issue and looking at, you know, where did this start and where did we miss the signs along the way on this person? Evidently, the shooter called up a friend and said, I just want to tell you, you're going to be reading about me in the news, said, I'm going to I'm going to I'm not going to be around here. I'm going to die. And at that point, if that ever happens, do you agree with me that if anyone calls you up in your life, you have to call the authorities, whether they're they're clearly a danger to themselves, but more importantly to others, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, again, like we've got to get in earlier and educate our kids on what these warning signs are. And you see something, you say something, you hear something, you say something like if you talk to these kids and you understand what they're saying, like those kids, I would rather have 100 false alarms than one that actually we missed. And so you've got to get our children understanding that when people are reaching out to you and saying things that are that are tragic or that they're going to be famous for something, you have to to weigh in and you have to tell adults in that situation or somebody in that situation. And we have to have as a society a way to respond to that. We've got to get law enforcement. We've got to get task force available to understand that we have missed a lot of these folks along the way. And if we don't address that right now and we allow people to continue to identify by a category or by a title um, and we're not addressing like maybe the reasons why they're doing that, um, we're going to get more manifestos and we're going to get more people following the lines because they think that it's an infamy that they will never lose in their lifetime. Right. I want, you to, I want you to hear what John Drake said, the Nashville police chief. So for people at home to know, uh, the cops went in and uh, killed the shooter in 14 minutes. Uh, cut 21. You know, it's been very traumatic for me as well. I, uh, when I first got the notification uh, that there was an incident, uh, we immediately stopped everything we were doing, uh, went out to the scene. Uh, I was actually uh, not too far behind the responding officers. As uh, we got there, we had officers coming out, uh, hands bleeding, emotional. I hugged one of the officers who almost collapsed uh, in my hands. Uh, I saw little kids uh, coming out, and that was really tough for me because they looked like they was a little bit above knee high. Uh, they were waving, uh, and, and my heart just dropped. I mean, those kids are going to be traumatized, too. 
Well, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, what he's saying is it's it's not just the children, it's the teachers, it's the law enforcement responders. I actually was privy to see the footage of, from the body cam of, as the officers went in. This is something that, that will weigh into the minds of these gentlemen for a lifetime. And people forget, like, this is not a single crime. It's not just the victims that we lost, as tragic as that was. It's all of the victims we've now created from a secondary and tertiary point when we see this happened. I, I wanted, to, if I can, pivot and talk about social media. And everyone's talking about yeah. banning TikTok. 150 million people are on it. Most are under 30. Uh, they have 20 million are making. They may uh, generate 20 million dollars worth of revenue from it for various things that they're able to uh, generate revenue from on on TikTok. But it's one of those things that's addicting. But it also one thing that's pretty clear. It's causing a lot of anxiety in kids. So it's not just Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook. Or Twitter, it's now TikTok. In the big picture, before we talk about that in particular, uh, a whole generation is really having a nervous breakdown, it seems, by the pressures of social media. Can you explain it? Yeah, I, I mean, I actually wrote a book that came out at the end of the pandemic called Digital Distress, and it's on Gen Z and why we have such a crisis in our, in our nation, uh, actually internationally with the, with social media. Our children are in developmental stages when they're growing up in life. They're trying to figure out who they are. They're trying to figure out if I do X, then Y happens. They're trying to, to learn the lessons that we all learned when we were growing up. Those of us that didn't have social media, we learned them in person. We learned them by trial and error, and we had good and bad. With social media, it is a one-way stream of content and information and a platform that we can share information and adulterate their minds with whatever it is that we want. And TikTok, by far, is one of the most dangerous that I find. And if you look at the content that's that goes in and the, the messaging that they provide to our children, it's such a vulnerable state in their mind. Of course, our children are trying to identify and figure out whether what gender they are, or what, what they want to be in this world, because they're being told and they're being really calculated in their way of like approaching our children and telling them that you, that you don't have to be X or Y. You don't have to worry about the brand of who you are. And they're shifting that moral compass from parents, school, and church and they're moving it into social media being their primary resource. And they are able to, in my opinion, inoculate or, or adulterate all of our children into that, into that space. So I've been doing clinical practice for 20 years, Brian. I have never in my history over the last six years seen so many lost, hurt children based on their consumption of social media. It's amazing. Uh, so what do, you, what do you think is really diabolical about TikTok in particular? Because for people who think TikTok is just the problem, just so you know, there's other apps that are also extremely hot from uh, from China uh, that are in there. Timu is the most downloaded app now across the U.S. in the app stores. They also have a CapCut edit device, which is part of a TikTok itself. So China's coming up. If you don't like TikTok, you want to ban TikTok, you got to be ready to ban more than just that. I totally agree. I, I mean, one of my platforms in going into the schools and talking to these children is I pull the terms of service and I pull it up and I say, here's what you agree to. You agree to them owning your content, ability to follow all of your content, to access all of your content in order to, in my opinion, that the algorithms that they have set up in those 
scenarios is really uh, calculated at taking our children off of the path of being successful, competent humans in in all of that arena. And and I'm I consult with law firms that are that are going in and trying to break that algorithm up. And of course that's that's a difficult challenge after Section 230 and all of the issues. But the but in my opinion the entertainment value is what is keeping our kids attached. And they're going in as behavioral psychologists and using those trained individuals to go in and figure out how do we addict these children at a very young age and how do we make them feel that they can't live without it. And it's true addiction from my opinion, where I see as early as six and seven years old, children that have had early access do not and cannot give it up without intervention. How interesting is the CEO goes, yeah, my kids live in Singapore. They can't touch this stuff until they're 13. Okay, that's nice. There's rules there. There's rules in China, but there's not rules here. So Utah is not waiting for the federal government. They are putting together something that's going to go implementing gradually over the next year. Require parental consent for all accounts. Give parents access to kids' accounts. Prohibit kids under 18 from use of the uh, of any app, social media, 10.30 p.m. till 6 a.m. How do you feel about that? And is it po- – I mean, is that possible? Well, I think anything's possible in the technology-related world with geofencing and all of the things that are able to be done. I mean, the tech industry themselves could come in and be the adults in the situation, but they choose not to because – money over minds is what I see happening every day. I think that it's a good start. I think that we really have to, as a nation, start to put in some stronger holds. And if you look at other countries, uh, the U.K. is a perfect example. London School of Economics came out with a study in 2016. They said cell phones are are ruining our children's minds and educational capacity, and they banned all personal cell phones out of the classroom from that moment forward. They looked at the science, they did, they they made an effort, and then they allow children to have technology in the classroom, but only the technology that educators are able to monitor. And it That's made in a China? huge difference. That would <laughs> that would be in France. That would be the UK. Uh, China was probably all over this before that in, in particular. Oh, ab- oh yeah. China, you're absolutely right, Brian. Like China, they the content that they give their kids is all educational. It's all pro-social. It's all about taking care of one another. It is – there is no – there is no similarity between our TikTok, as an example, and Du Yang or Du Yang, however you say that. Um, the content is completely different, and they are raising their children to be competent, thoughtful humans, and they are huh. filling our children's minds with trash. Absolutely. Uh, you know what's interesting is we had uh, Tristan Harris, one of the premier experts on social media, and he says he thinks there's a movement out there as strong as mad, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, against social media. And he thinks they're going to start regulating it because it's going to be a public demand for it to reclaim our youth and reclaim our interaction. Have you heard, have you heard similar things? I, not only have I heard similar things, I serve on um, serve as a consultant on a, on an effort that is happening in that arena. There's, there's, Everything from the moms that are angry at the 40% increase in fentanyl deaths that are being, uh, you know, sent out and dropped off through Instagram posts and social media, like delivery style for these kids to just mental health itself and the fact that these kids are anxious and depressed and um, unsettled would be the the word that I would say that our society is breaking down. And if we don't get a handle on it, 
um, we will lose this entire generation. And so we've got to step up and be the adults in the situation. And now here comes AI. And now here comes AI is going to have a whole bunch of new challenges. Right. And and can we use AI in an ethical, pro-social, good way in our communities? Absolutely. But what are we looking at to be the leaders in that? And you can't go. I can tell you the last five to ten years when I've seen these congressional hearings and Zuckerberg is sitting there with a smug look on his face and Congress is saying, please do better and do make some changes. And he says, yeah, I will. And now we've had all of the tech leaders come in and say, you know, we'll put some changes in there. We'll put some measures in there for parents. They have no intention of those parents being able to use those or understand how to even implement those. So we cannot trust the very uh, tech industry, the, the very industry itself, to be able to self-police when money is on the line and they have shareholders to account to. We have to pull it out right. and we have to do it in a federal, in my opinion, in a national level to help people like what Utah's doing and we have to create similarities well, so that we have true. It a national Dr. Truman, I, I would make the analogy this way. Obviously, drunk, drunk driving is against the law. You'll go to jail. Got it. But it's up to the individual states and communities to, uh, to make people aware it. Uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, how bad it is drinking and driving. And, and it worked. And, and smoking, it worked. There's a generation growing up is really not smoking at all like they did previous generations. And uh, drunk driving, you, the average 17-year-old, they just don't do it. I mean, it's really an aberration when they do it, where that was not my generation. It was actually kidded around about in movies. So I think we, there is hope out there. Dr. Lisa Stroman, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Brian, for having yeah, me. That was a great segment. Attorney and psychologist, mental health advocate. Uh, listen, I hope you picks up some from that. When we come back, I'll take some of your calls, one 408 7669 Also, news about Matt Taibbi that we all will find disturbing. And then we welcome in the great Roy White, just days from the opening day of baseball. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We are uninformed, misinformed. We don't even understand how social media works. We don't know anything about data brokers and how data brokers sell our data to foreign countries and foreign companies right now. That's happening right now. So bad TikTok tomorrow, this stuff is still going to be happening. Uh I don't know who paid him off. Maybe they didn't, but I don't know why he would come out and say that and not understand that this is not about Facebook or Instagram. They're American companies that we can be harsh with and they can be harsh with us and be irresponsible. And and sometimes we can be irresponsible with big business. This is about China having access to our material, finding out about uh, finding out about our people, our mores and our interests. And number three. Most importantly, a third of people listening under 30 get their news from TikTok. Do you want China manipulating subtly at that what we like and what we don't like? Suddenly realize these Confucius Institutes are A-OK, that America is too belligerent in the world, that it's our aggressive imperialistic tendencies that are causing so much strife, that really Taiwan has no business separating from red China. And all of a sudden, that becomes a whole generation's belief. That's what's at stake. We have to wise up, and I bring you to this. They ban Facebook. They ban Twitter. They ban Instagram. They ban Google, and they're mad at us for possibly banning TikTok and Timu and all these other stuff that are making their way up to the charts on the App Store list. 
When we come back, Roy White joins us. We take a breath. It's a breath of fresh air looking back at his career, and we get set to welcome spring officially, even though it was two weeks ago, with the beginning of Baseball Dead Counts. Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. He hits one deep to right center. That ball is out of here. The Yankees win the pennant. Holy cow, Chris Chambliss on one swing. Unbelievable. What a finish. As dramatic a finish as you'd ever want to see. And holy cow, Chambliss hits one over the fence. He is being mobbed by the fans. And this field will never be the same, but the Yankees have won it in the bottom of the ninth, 7-6. And I want to tell you, the safest place to be is up here in the booth. That was Game 5. Chris Chambliss breaks, I think, a 6-6 tie with a home run to put the Yankees back in the World Series. Uh, first time in over a decade. Uh, they would get swept by the, the Red Machine, the Cincinnati Reds, but the dramatic home run would give Roy White his first visit uh, to the World Series. His, it's all chronicled in his book, Roy White from Compton to the Bronx. Uh, what a great career he has had. Finally puts uh, pen to paper and tells everybody about it from his perspective. Roy, what were your thoughts hearing Phil Rizzuto make that call in 1976? <laughs> oh, that's a great memory for me, Brian. Uh, uh, when I signed that contract with the Yankees as an 18-year-old coming out of Compton, California, I said, well, you know what? Once I get to the Yankees, I'm going to be in the World Series every year because that's the way it was when I was a kid. Well, it took 11 years. So that was one of my happiest moments in baseball when uh, Chris's ball was out of the park and uh, everything was nuts there. (laughs) So so Roy White played 15 years with the New York Yankees. He played a couple of years uh, in Japan, did exceedingly well. Uh, Roy, I grew up watching you. I was a Met fan, but I always liked the Yankees. My brother <laughs> worshipped you. In fact, you came to um, a place called White's, believe it or not, in Massapequa, Long Island. And my brother, <laughs> God has used his own money, bought this poster of you that was mounted <laughs> on wood. And you signed it for him. And he is now 60. And he still has it in his office. And it was one of his great moments. So for for me, you guys are you're bigger than life. When when you were writing this book, did the memories come back, or have they always been there? Well, they've always been there, and I'd been asked to write a book uh, on many occasions, you know, over the last uh, you know twenty years. But uh, everybody wanted me to do a tell-all thing, you know, about the Yankees and George and Billy and all that stuff. Yeah, and it's already been done several times, and that's not the kind of book that I wanted to do. And finally, uh, uh, I was contacted by a person uh, who had heard me over a podcast, and he lived in Jersey, only about 10 minutes from my house. And he was a book writer, and he asked to do my book, and I got in contact with him. And uh, I said, geez, you know, I I think I'd like to do something, but I just want to do it about uh, my story and uh, all the trials and tribulations and twists and turns that I had in my career. And he said, that's what we're going to do. So uh, uh, I have something for my for my grandkids to look at, you know, right. <laughs> uh, when they get a little older and they can say they can look at grandpa and see uh, what happened to me and how I got to the Yankees. So so I got that all done. I think I have an interesting story 
you know, growing up in Compton, uh, uh, a tough area, uh, having polio, uh, when I was six years old and, and surviving it without any paralysis, a, a lucky break for me, you know, that my grandmother happened to be over at the house that day when I came back from school with a fever and wasn't feeling well. And she called an ambulance and, uh, and got me to a hospital where I spent about three months in the hospital in Los Angeles. So when I finally yeah. got out, I actually got put back a grade, but uh, I called back up and was reinstated a year later. They moved me back up. So then I had that and then getting to the Yankees, you know, interest story, I was signed with the Yankees and then later on playing in Japan. So a lot of interesting elements to talk about. A couple of things, uh, Roy, I, I, a lot of this I did not know because, you know, just as fan growing up watching you every day, Number one, you're, you're, the fact that you got scattered by the Yankees, you had some. You, you must have been a great athlete. You were a football player and a baseball player, and you got you had some college offers. But you, a lot of your friends were being drafted. You must have had so much talent in Compton. Very little money. There was no. There's nobody going to bringing you around to different camps around the country. They had to come watch you. Why were there so many scouts around you guys? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Uh, uh, you know, my mother was on welfare, you know, so uh, we were always poor out there in Compton. But Your dad was not around. He was not around. Yeah, the, we lived in Los Angeles originally. We moved to Compton when I was around uh, nine or ten years old, I believe. And uh, in our neighborhood, you know, all the kids that I became friends with, we all just loved baseball. And uh, when I started playing Little League in the Compton Western Little League, some of the guys that were in that little league with me were Donald Wilson, who pitched for the Houston Astros, was an all-star. Reggie Smith wow. played for the Cardinals and the Dodgers. We later played against each other in the World Series. Lenny Randall played for the Mets and a number of clubs, and another guy named Davey Nelson. Then across town, uh, we had uh, we had Jim Rooker, who uh, played in the majors, Paul Shaw, who played uh, third base for the Angels, and a guy named Ronnie Woods. Uh, who played for the Pirates and later played on the Yankees. In fact, three of us were on the Yankees at the same time, around 1972 or 73. Uh, Ronnie Woods, Lenny Randall, and, and myself, and we all grew up in Compton. That is incredible. So it was a hotbed of baseball, yeah. Yeah, essentially had a freelance scout sign you for very little money, $6,000, and, <laughs> and tell you, take, you know, take your time getting there. We'll let you know when you're ready. And then they bring you into camp, and, uh, and you just proved yourself to find the odds. Roy, I just want people at home to go go back to 1977. Uh, the game's ties uh, with the Red Sox. Uh, after uh, This is followed by Reggie Jackson's game-winning hit, but here's Roy White, cut 48. Roy Randolph at third, two outs here in the ninth inning. The Yankees are down by two. That one is hit well to right field. And the ball game is tied up. What a way to pass Rizzuto. These fans are going wild, and so is the Yankee bench. Roy White has tied the ball game up. Drilled down the right side. That's going to be a base hit. And the ball game is over. Reggie Jackson jumping on the first pitch from Hernandez. And the Yankees come back and win it by a score of 6-5. to five. So, yeah, one week after the Red Sox swept the Yanks at Fenway in the series, it featured you back again. But you, you passed. You moved into ninth at that point uh, in hits for the Yankees. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's probably the biggest home run of my career. And uh, the funny thing is it was actually the only time that I felt like I was going to hit a home run <laughs> because the previous time at bat, 
I had just missed one, and I, and I really felt good. You know, my swing felt my great. My timing was good. I said, geez, if I get another chance, I feel like I can hit one out. <laughs> so lo and behold, I come up, and, you know, Willie gets a triple because Yastrzemski's playing like he's in Fenway. You know, he's kind of shallow and left, and he hits it over his head for a triple. And uh, I get a chance to come up, and uh, Campbell, who was pitching, uh, I, I can't think of the first name right now, Jim Campbell or something like that. Uh, he was a tough pitcher. He had to pitch some type of screwball that he threw. And the first pitch was one that it kind of hung a little bit, and I jumped on it, and, and I hit one out. And uh, that turned out to be a turning point in the season, actually, because if we would have lost that game, uh, we would have been like six games out and may have never caught up. But uh, we won that game and then won the next three. So instead of being behind seven or eight games, if we had lost that series, we were only one out after that series was over, and that, that turned our whole season around. And you go on to win a world championship. And we went on, right, against the Dodgers, uh, my hometown. Team. So, so Roy, this is why I think people can relate to your story, is there's so many people, there's very few Michael Jordans of the world, Reggie Jacksons of the world, uh, but there's people that do the job that allow them to shine on a regular basis, on a day in and a day out. They never get the fame or acclaim they deserve. You're that guy. You have great stats. Every All your teammates appreciated you, but you weren't getting the fame and acclaim that probably you should have gotten. Uh, and what was it like? I mean, for example, the, the so-called Bronx Zoo, Sparky Lyle wrote the book, you know, with Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin and Thurman Munson in the locker room. I mean, it was it was like a soap. Was it really like a soap opera on a daily basis? <laughs> yeah, I didn't notice too much, Brian. Uh... I was kind of, you know, a lot of things happened. I didn't even know they happened. But you had a locker right next to Thurman Munson. How did you not know? (laughs) I know. (laughs) Well, Thurman was a quiet guy. We were great great friends. We were one of my best friends on the team because, you know, we sat next to each other, as you said, uh, for the, uh, you know, 11 years that he was with the Yankees. But um, a lot of times I was already out of the clubhouse because I was one of the first guys to be out of the clubhouse after a game. You know, if I didn't have to be interviewed, I could be out of the clubhouse within 10 minutes after the game and, be going across the McCombs Bridge. Right. So uh, a lot of stuff I miss, but uh, the key thing about our club is that uh, despite all that was going around, that once we got on the field, uh, we were ready to play ball, and uh, right. everybody was an asset to that club. You know, anybody could beat you on our club. And the, the other thing, you know, talking about, you know, stats and stuff like that, if I was playing today, I would be more recognized because with sabermetrics and all that stuff, my numbers are, are up at the top, you know, with a lot of guys, but that wasn't around at that time. So, you know, nobody knew about, you know, moving runners over and on base percentage, hitting behind the runner, being able to steal a base and uh, the war, you know, wins above replacement and all that kind of stuff. But Roy White is the link between Mickey Mantle and Reggie Jackson, you know, from Ralph Hawk to, uh, to Billy Martin, to Bob Lemon, you know, you were the guy. Then you coached for years afterwards, and you watched the formation of those young Yankees come into fruition. You saw the talent. There were no hitting coaches, but you kind of, you and Lou Pinnell would kind of assume that role, uh, and it was pretty amazing. Right. So your stats were 271, over 1,800 hits. But remember, a couple of those key years were in Japan where you did well, and you played with, I think, Sadarhara O, who had, did right. he have 800 home runs or something? <laughs> That's a good story. If uh, I'll, I'll tell you, my greatest hitting day in my professional career came in Japan, and uh, we had a game. Uh, my my wife and kids had just come in from the states, 
and I brought my son to the ballpark, and we're playing in Tokyo. And, and the first time up, I hit a home run. I'm batting left-handed, home run to right field. Second time up, I doubled, drove in a run. Third time up, I'm batting right-handed, and uh, we're down two. And there's a runner on. I tie the game with a home run right-handed. My fourth time up in the bottom of the ninth, the game is tied. I hit my third home run to win the game. So I get back to the apartment after the game is over with my son and uh, my daughter, my wife. And I said, uh, wait till we see the papers tomorrow, kids. And, you know, dad had a great day, you know, four for four, three homers, game winning homer. And the headline the next day when we got up was Sada Hara O. It's his 758th home run. <laughs> <laughs> to pass Hank Aaron and become the all-time leader. That is I didn't even get, that is I didn't even get honorable mention. But everybody who sees you appreciates it, but you don't get the press you deserve. I'm going to bring you to a couple of moments because you shed light on it. I didn't know. So Billy Martin mistakenly thinks Reggie Jackson is, is dogging out in the outfield when the sun was just in his eyes. They didn't like each other. Here's the moment, June 19, 1977, cut 47. Look at, look at this. Look at Billy. Is he hot? Billy wants to get at Reggie. He's being restrained by, uh, that's in full view of the crowd, being restrained by Yogi Berra and Elston Howard. As with now, Billy gets around, but now Yogi's got him and trying to wrestle him down. Yogi's got him. Having room with Billy Martin and played with him for so many years, I know the explosive temper he has. Billy just asked for 100% from his ball players. And see, Reggie Jackson had the sun in his eyes. He yanked him from the game, put Paul Blair in. And when they got to the locker room, he said, what was that? When they get to the dugout at Fenway, they start fighting. This was incredible. Where were you? <laughs> uh, I was standing out in the left center field talking to Gary Thomas. And, you know, uh, uh, the timeout was called, you know, and uh, we didn't know what was going on. So uh, I trotted over towards center. Gary came over. And uh, we're looking at each other and say, what the hell's going on? And then we look and we see all of a sudden we see Paul Blair coming out of the dugout and, you know, he's running across the field. And you go, what is Paul doing on the field? Then all of a sudden we see him heading the right field. Then we say, uh-oh, <laughs> this is going to be good because now we knew that Reggie was coming out of the game. And I think Reggie even pointed at himself and was like, what, me? <laughs> you know, he wants me to come out. So we just kind of watched the whole thing. We've seen him go back into the dugout, and we see uh, guys jumping around down there, and it was just incredible, you know, that, that, that this was happening. I, I'd never seen anything like that. So Billy was erratic. In 76, he was great. In 77, you saw him erratic. He never communicated with you, never told you really the truth. He benched you out of nowhere. Even though you win the World Series, you watched. You knew you were in the prime of your career, and you didn't go to the the parade. The next year when you played a lot, you also didn't go. You said that's uh, one of your regrets, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I was really bitter at that 77 World Series. You know, we're, we're back in the World Series again for the second time, and, and we're playing the Dodgers. I'm from Los Angeles. You know, my dad's there. My mom's there. And Billy had told me uh, prior to the series, he says that when they're pitching a left-hander, he was going to play Lou, and they didn't have the DH. You know, Lou so Pinnell. he couldn't be in the lineup. Yeah. Yeah, he's going to play Lou Pinella. So he says, when a right-hander comes in, though, you're going to start. Or if a right-hander reliever comes in, I'm going to put you in the game. So I said, okay, great. And so uh, all those things happened, but I never got in the game. I think I pinch hit twice in that series. So I didn't enjoy it like I should have, you know, in retrospect when I was looking back on it. But and I didn't go to the parade. And so the next year, I played every game in the World Series was in the running for MVP right down to the last game. 
and Bucky had a great game, and I had a just a good game. <laughs> so when that was over, I didn't want to be a hypocrite. So Thurman was going back home, and I said, "I'm going home too." Uh, and I didn't go to the parade again. Well, well lastly, looking back we, on it, yeah, yeah you should want to, real quick. I only have thirty seconds, but yeah. Roy White's my guest okay. from Compton, the Bronx. You got to get his book. And you got to uh, and you got to support his foundation, the Roy Wright Foundation. George Steinbrenner, Thanks. your thoughts? Well, he got us back in. There's no doubt about that. Uh, despite all the controversy and everything, uh, when George took over the club, he started making changes. We started getting players, and uh, he got us to be a winning ball club again, which we weren't before because CBS had owned the club and, and they weren't putting any money into the club. So. I have to give him the credit for uh, putting the Yankees back on top. Right, and he, and he never changed your demeanor. And the thing that you have is key is the respect from everybody you played against and played with. And I hope the Yankees recognize you and put you in Monument <laughs> Park uh, because people who watched you play certainly do. Roy White, congratulations on your career and your book. Everyone, pick it hey. up. Thanks. Thanks for your thoughts. I really appreciate it. Thank you got you. it. And support the Roy White Foundation. helps high school kids afford college. Back in a moment. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back, everybody. You know, it's good to go with Roy White. I ran out of time a little bit, but I did want to play this one ad. I wanted to get his his thoughts, but sadly, we only have a minute left. So let's listen to this moment. Cut 51. You know, a lot of people think Billy and I argue all the time. Actually, we agree on just about everything. Right, Bill? Yeah, you betcha, George. We even drink the same beer. Light beer from Miller's. Light's got a third less calories than the regular beer, and it's less filling. And the best thing is it tastes so great. No, George, the best thing is less filling. No, Bill, it tastes great. Less filling, George. Billy, it tastes great. Less filling, George. Billy? Yeah, George. You're fired. (laughs) Not again. (laughs) Light beer from Miller. Everything you always wanted in a beer and less. How many times was he fired, Pete? Was it three times he was fired? He was a manager five. He was a five-time manager, and the rumors were he was going to be brought back for a sixth time. If it wasn't for that accident, that accident took his life upstate. Pretty, pretty amazing. That was a crazy time for sports, which when sports was news. Would have loved to have hosted this show those days. Could you imagine? Oh, it would be great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, keep in mind, if you want any of my books of history, briankillmead.com. Just click on I can sign them and send them. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.